If you brought a Bible with you, you can find Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. If you know anything about Romans chapter 3, you will know that it's pretty safe that Joe Olstein will not be plagiarizing this message. <laughs> Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. What... Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their uh, faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Meganote, God forbid, may it never be, by no means. Let God be true, and everyone... A liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, God forbid. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, and he's going to give a slew of six passages from the Old Testament. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps or vipers under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they've not known There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be, what? Stopped, shut, silenced, and the whole world may be held accountable, guilty, as charged to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The other day, I was getting my hair cut, same place I've been getting it cut for about 10 years, maybe more, and, uh, but there's a new lady cutting my hair, so new opportunity. Three other ladies, very close by, had all cut my hair over the years, and I'd gotten to know them a little bit. And uh, this gal was cutting my hair, and she was just doing what they do, asking me questions, going back and forth, and, you know, how many kids you got? Ten! You know, I always get that deal. And, uh, yeah, well, how'd you have that? Well, you know, I said that my first wife passed away, and, uh, oh! And she rears back, and she says, I'm looking at her in the mirror, and she said, 
that is so weird. She says, it always happens to the good ones. If I asked you, by nature, in your heart of hearts, is man basically good, bad, or a blank slate when he comes into this world? How would you answer that? Seriously. This has been the topic of religious and philosophical debate for millennium. Thousands of years, actually. Now, no one in their right mind would argue against the fact that our environment often determines the outcome of our lives. Behavior modification is very real. We grow up, you grow up in an evil environment, and you will likely follow in lockstep. On the other hand, and every one of you need to listen very carefully to these next few words. Grow up in a Christ-like, godly home. And there is a good chance that you will adopt, and I'm purposely using those words, adopt the rules of the home. The practices of Christian life. Clean living. Good music. But without a true, born-again experience, it's only behavior modification, nothing more. You've adjusted your behavior, but your heart has not changed. Where did this thinking come from that men are basically good from the get-go? And I'm sure that that probably seems like a strange question to ask for some of you. Of course people are good. But if that question seems strange... If that question seems strange to you, what would you make of Jesus' answer to the guy who came to him one day and he said, good teacher, um, uh, what do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus didn't just tell him the answer. He first questioned the question. Why do you call me good? Look at this. No one is good except God alone. Have you read that before? Has that ever given you pause? It should. Because it's true. I want to give you four truths from this passage that you must accept. They're simple, but they might change your destiny. Here's the first one. God is good. We are bad. That's simple enough, isn't it? It was John Jacques Rousseau, back in the 18th century, he was a philosopher, a principal player in the French Revolution, who, who philosophically postulated that man is basically good in his nature. Then you add the theologians down through the centuries, you know, Pelagius, Arminius, and even the great evangelist John Wesley embraced the teaching That man, while sinful, has a measure of God's grace. Every man in this world, born in this world, has some measure of a flicker, a spark, a a little light, a a flash, if you please, of God's grace in him and her. 
so that he or she has the ability in and of themselves to do good. Indeed, you have the ability from your free will to trust Jesus. But I would submit to you that that is simply not true. Peter says, by his own will he begot us. Have you ever read that? They were wrong. Influential, but wrong. Paul describes us in Ephesians 2 as dead. We are dead. Dead people can't respond. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever had a conversation with the corpse that you're looking at? At a funeral? They're dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, the scripture says. We are children of wrath. Has our society bought into the basic premise that man is good? Oh, yeah. I can remember years ago, Jesse Jackson saying, I might have been born in the ghetto, but the ghetto wasn't born in me. Clever statement, but it's not true. The ghetto was born in you and me. According to this passage, we are conceived in the ghetto. Now, this is not the way we like to look at other people, let alone ourselves. We have a tendency to have a high, even a very high view of others, right? Or, and certainly of ourselves. I'm watching the, uh, did anybody watch the Ohio State-Northwestern game last night? As, as the players are running off the field, I noticed all these Northwestern players are hitting this guy holding this board. But the, you could just see the back, they're hitting this board as they go by, you know. And, oh, that's probably a cool board. It says, go Wildcats or something, you know. Did anybody see it when they went? It said, trust yourself. It was just strange. It was just so strange to me. But it, it fits our society. So here's the second thing I want you to notice from this passage. The knowledge we possess doesn't make us better than others. It makes us more accountable than others. How's that grab you? That's the basic teaching of the first eight verses that we read there, which is really a continuation of the study we had last week on the Jew, the good guys, the smug guys, rather. The knowledge we possess doesn't make us better than others. It just makes us more accountable before God. Jesus said this in a parable that he taught in Luke chapter 12. He said, to whom much is given, what? Much will be required. And he even says to Christian teachers, don't aspire to be teachers. Listen, if you're going to be a teacher, you're going to, you're going to, have, you're going to result in having the greater judgment given towards you. Why is that? The reason is because judgment, be it eternal or be it temporal, is always according to knowledge. So these first eight verses are sort of an extension of the last ones in chapter 2. On the Jews who have just been told that their circumcision won't cut it. No pun intended. It's not going to save them. Paul, like a brilliant lawyer, anticipates no less than five questions from his fellow Jews. Four of which he answers, he kind of plays the devil's advocate in answering them. So, 
in, in the first section, they're saying, well, you know, they're basically asking the question. So if the only thing that counts is the inward heart of circumcision, our inward condition, you know, what's the sense? What's the sense? What's the advantage of ever being a Jew, Paul? And Paul answers, are you serious? You have the revelation of God. You have the very, quote, oracles, the, the lagias, the, the sayings, the divine utterances of God have been in your hands. What do you mean, what advantage? It's, it's a little bit like a kid who goes off to college. These Jews, and really a lot of us raised in a Christian environment. We're like a kid who goes off to college with every advantage imaginable. You got rich parents, they're footing the bill. You got the greatest teachers, you're, you know, you're, you're right in the groove as to what you do best. You're very intelligent yourself. And yet you flunk. How does that happen? How does somebody with all those advantages flunk? Well, the answer is very simple. You or they or whoever we're talking about didn't take advantage of your advantages. Am I right? Now, he does say some there in verse 3, I think it is. But it, in other words, not every one of the Jews, some of them responded rightly to the revelation. There are, not every single Jew was rejected by God. Those who reject... You know, it's like light received brings light. They believed the revelation of God. They believed in the Messiah when he came. But as a whole, they had rejected it. By the time Paul exhausts all of these arguments in this passage, he's so disgusted in their thinking, he basically says, you got it coming. Look, look, look what he says in verse, verse 8. He says there at the end, their condemnation is just. You know, he's responding to the fact. And why, do we, and why not do evil? That good may come. He's anticipating this kind of ridiculous thinking. I mean, if God is just going to, you know, do his thing, what difference does it make the way I live? He says, you've got it coming. And by the way, when we get to chapter 9, that's about March, if the calendar holds up right, and the Lord doesn't come back. Paul will mingle his great love for the Jewish people with the accountability of their advantages that have been given to them by God. And then he's going to declare in incomparable terms God's divine right to do what he pleases. That's the passage. Doesn't the potter have the right over the clay to do what he wants? There's wrath that's coming. To these individuals who have revelation and they've not received it properly. William Hendrickson is right when he says, The God who is faithful to his promises is also faithful to his threats. Right now, all of you, every one of you who were raised in the truth, look at me. You are no different than these Jews that Paul is referring to. Great advantages, but have you taken advantage of your advantages? <clears throat> you remember Uzzah? He was the kid that grew up in the house of Abinadab, I think it was, who, where the Ark of the Covenant ended up residing for several years. It literally was in his house. He grew up around this Ark. 
And so when the time came for the Ark of the Covenant, that which represented the very presence of God to be taken into what would become the city of David, you know, he's walking alongside it, teeters, because they're not doing it right, they're not handling it properly, but it teeters just the same. What does he do? He instinctively reaches out and touches it. Why? Because he had lost reverence for the very presence of God, and God killed him right on the spot. He'd grown up around it. The very presence of God. But familiarity bred contempt in him. Listen, the knowledge of God, his ways, his rules, even his wisdom can be followed without one actually having a change of heart. Let me say that to you again because I'm absolutely certain it applies to some of you. The knowledge of God, his ways, his rules, even his wisdom can be followed without one actually having a change of heart. It's just behavior modification. That's all it is. You're just applying Christian principles to your life. And when you die, you go to hell because you've never trusted in the living God and his son Jesus. One day, my friend, you will stand before God, just like me, and all of the knowledge that you have accumulated Every bit of it, all the verses you've memorized, all the Christian principles you've applied to your business will do you no good. If, the, if that knowledge was not received, if those advantages were not taken advantage of and you humbled your heart before God. Verse 20 says, by the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law just has a couple of purposes. It, amplifies God, it magnifies, that is the holiness of God, and magnifies the sinfulness of us men. The, the law is like a mirror. We, we appreciate mirrors. Do you not appreciate mirrors? We, you know, we look in the mirror, that's what the law does. But nobody took a mirror and then started scrubbing their face, right? So it would be as if I came up to you that today and I said, uh, I said, Mark, I said, uh, did you look in the mirror this morning? And Mark says, well, yeah. Well, I'm just wondering because you got dried barbecue sauce all over your right cheek. That's why I'm just asking. I mean, did you actually? Yes, I told you I looked in the mirror. And he walks away. Now, that would be weird. The mirror just showed him the dried barbecue sauce. The mirror can't take it off. The mere intention is so that you will apply soap. So, here we have a group of people who are just like so many of us. We have knowledge. Knowledge we possess doesn't make us better than anyone else. It just makes us more accountable than anybody else. Here's the third thing. We are bad to the bone. Actually, worse than that. And really, the, the gut of this passage of Scripture is, is all of these quotes from the Old Testament. But look at this is, this is Paul's, this is like the final, the prosecution's final argument. And he's going to drive his point home. None is righteous, not even one. 
All are under sin, he said in verse 9. We're all under sin. If wrath is over us, then we are, and we are, we are under sin. Wrath and sin are being virtual mirrors here. Out of verse 9 come all of the alls of the following. I mean, look at all of these. I mean, when people, look at, look at them. He says, none is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. None, no one does good. Not even one. People who get into verbal arguments with one another often use absolute statements. Now, you never do that, do you? You always do that. You never do this. I always, I never. Absolute statements. They're almost never true. Right? Yeah. But when it comes to our state of being, God uses absolute statements that are absolutely true. In fact, if you just, if you notice in those two, just in verses 10 through 12, there are, are you ready for this? You can count them for yourself. There are 13 absolute statements of condemnation. 13. And it certainly parallels other scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 says, Among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Colossians chapter 3 says, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. We are made up, man is made up of intellect, intellect, emotion, and will. And note that all three of these elements that that are our makeup have been permanently damaged. Look, verse 11. No one understands. That's our intellect. Nobody seeks. That's our will. That's our emotion, rather. And no one does, verse 12. That's our will. What is it like to God? When we think that all of our, that we're, that we're good enough, that we've made it, that we've arrived, I've been raised in the Christian home and all of these. What, is it, what does this look like to God? What does this seem like to God? Notice that a couple of verses later, their throat is an open grave. In the East, from time to time, they would let people just lay there in the graves. The sun and the rain, you can imagine. Just the other day, my wife and I were driving down the road, and it, and it, you know, we, 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 I thought we went by a, something dead. Did you ever get that? It comes right through the vent. It's like, oh, it's just horrible. Something's been ripe for a long time. And, uh, but it didn't go away. You know, normally it's just like this, and oh, then the fresh air starts coming in. But it's, this ain't going away. It's getting worse I just, in fact, my wife goes, Butcher, I'm, I'm getting this irpy feeling like I'm going to throw up. This is how bad it was. I said, this is, and I look up, and right in front of us is a rendering truck, and it's ripe. But there's cars pinning me in over here. I can't get away from it. So I, but praise God, there's an off-ramp. I'm going, it, it takes the off-ramp. 
This thing was so bad, I thought I was going to vomit right there in the car. I've never had an experience like this. It was just a few days ago. And only when I finally got around, it was like, oh, my goodness. I am the rendering truck. And God is me in that picture. I am bad to the very core of my being. And so are you. And until we recognize this, that there is nothing good within us, not anything good within us, we will never be saved. As long as you hold out a scintilla of hope in yourself, you cannot be saved. And this whole environment, that culture that we've grown up in, has taught us that we're good people. But nothing could be further from the truth. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. R.C. Sproul was once asked, what do you say to when bad things happen to good people? His response was, I've never met any good people. The psalmist, this is nothing new. The psalmist put it like this, my goodness is nothing apart from you. Have you ever read that? It is bad theology, John Gerstner said, which, make, which thinks man good. Any good theology must start with man as bad. I told you, Joel would not be preaching this passage. We're under sin. Now, the word sin, get used to it, it's used 48 times in the book of Romans. It's the word, the familiar word, harmartia. It's a noun. It's not a verb. It's not describing what we do. It's describing who we are. And that's a big difference because it's who we are that causes us to be who we do. The Reformers called this the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity does not describe so much what we do, but who we are. Incapable of coming to God on our own because we're dead. Sin has killed us spiritually. We are dead. We're dead to God. We're dead to, we're, we're dead to all sensitivity until God himself wakes us up. And the very first time sin is ever used in the Bible, the, the law of first reference says that when an important theological term is used, it usually provides a foundation for that word elsewhere. And that's certainly the case with the word sin because remember when God confronts Cain, who has just prescribed, just brought an offering that was not acceptable he says, Cain, you know, what are you so down in the mouth about? If you do well, it'll, be, it'll go well with you. But if you don't, sin lies at your door. Have you ever read that? And its desire is for you. God pictures sin as a wild animal desiring to just pounce on you and absolutely consume you, and that's what it has already done. Verses 13 and 14, the throat, you know, the, just look at it. Verse 13, the throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth. There's a sequence. Paul is showing how depravity which starts in our heart makes its way to our mouths, of course. That would be consistent with what Jesus said in Matthew 15. Because everything sort of emanates from our hearts. The reason Paul, guided by the Holy Spirit, goes for what comes out of our mouth is because many a Jew, many a you, many a me, 
attempt to justify ourselves, again, by the things we don't do. So Paul says, okay, let's talk about what comes out of your mouth that emanates from your heart. And boom, shakalaka. Guilty. Busted. Caught. He concludes, verse 19, we don't really fear God. We fear. We fear our reputations. We fear men. But we don't fear God. And thus we're accountable the word, the Greek word means to be under sentence. It referred to somebody who lost it in his trial. That's what it means. And every mouth, verse 19, is what? Every mouth is what? It's stopped. I was at an auction. I was at an auction years ago, and it was a farm auction, two guys next to me. They didn't know me from Adam, and holy smokes, was the, I mean, the profanity was coming out of their mouth like raw sewage. Just joking and laughing, I mean, and just went on and on for like 10 minutes. And I'm just penned in by these guys. They're talking back and forth, and occasionally to me, and <laughs> finally one of them goes, hey, what do you do? I was happy to tell them I pastor a Bible-believing church. <laughs> Silence. Look, if a sinful pastor can shut the mouth of a dirty farmer, how much more a holy God before a sinful man? The last thing I want to share to you is the bad news about our hearts makes God's grace truly amazing. If you think about it, there's nothing amazing about grace unless I am amazingly bad. Isn't that true? If a doctor informs me that I have cancer, that's bad news. If he, if he tells me I have incurable cancer, that's hopeless news. Our sin, like cancer, is bad news, really bad. But it is never incurable unless you refuse the treatment. This, by the way, is what makes the message of Joel Osteen so abominable. He refuses to acknowledge the spiritual malignancy that we are all facing. What would be worse? The doctor who told you the bad news that you have cancer but didn't offer a cure or a doctor who refused to even inform you that you have cancer. What's worse? Listen, heaven's great physician has laid out the bad news. It's horrible news. You're dead. You're a sinner. God's wrath is upon you. You have nothing good within you to bring yourself to God. That's bad news. You're dying. Your sin is going to kill you. But he is offering you a cure. I want to present to you in your mind's eye two opened doors. So picture this. One of them is the one you came through today. Today. You came through a door today. Somebody probably opened it for you as you were making your way in. 
And you might have even said thank you or given him the, you know, or good morning. You might not have said it, but you were grateful. I mean, what, let's just say you said thanks to the guy that opened the door for the, to the door greeter today. May I interpret, may I, would you just per, give me the permission to interpret your thank you for a moment? Here's what your thank you said. Thank you very much. You know, uh, I'm holding a kid, and I would have had to reach over with my other hand and open the door. So you doing that? Appreciate it. Or maybe even, I got my Bible in one hand, my kid in another. If you hadn't opened that door, I would have had to, you know, put my kid down and open the door and hold it with my foot and kind of... So that really was nice of you to do that. Appreciate it, brother. Or something like that. Now... Picture yourself in your car. You've just had a horrible accident. You're okay, but your car is on fire. And your seatbelt won't come unhooked. You're going to die. But suddenly a firefighter shows up. And with the jaws of life, he rips your door open, cuts that, that band of that, that's strapped across you and grabs you by the hair and pulls you out of the car. You watch the car explode. And you're virtually unscathed. Are you going to say, hey, appreciate that, buddy. That was nice. I would have had to probably reach over the glove compartment and find that scissors that I kind of forgot about that was there. And No, you would just see. Thank you. Thank you so much. The doctrine that we just looked at is really good news. Because it doesn't just tell us our problem. That same passage, and we're going to get into it in detail in the days to come, gives us the cure. Here it is. The great physician has provided the cure in his son, Jesus, who took your cancer, who took your fire, who took your sin upon himself. And that's what's pictured here at the Lord's table. And when you hold the bread... You don't picture the broken body of Jesus. You picture what this thing was meant to depict. You hold, you think about, you contemplate the perfect life of Jesus. The good one. When that person said, good teacher, he was right. But he wasn't ready to acknowledge that Jesus was God. And when he could acknowledge that Jesus was God, he could really call him good. Because he was good. When you hold this, you contemplate the goodness of Jesus Christ against your badness. And it will humble you. And then when you hold the juice, you think about his dying, his sacrifice for you. And you say, thank you. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful today that we can look into your word and discover ourselves guilty 
in desperate need of your forgiveness, deliverance. We have learned that you're good, we're bad. We've learned that our knowledge is not going to make us better than anyone else. It just keeps us more accountable before you. And Lord, our sin takes us to the very core of our being. But oh God, thank you so much that that is what makes your grace so amazing that you would be willing to take us sinners, separated, dead, alienated, hell-bound, and deliver us from the fire we are surely going to and some in this room are headed to right now. As we pray, and if this is you, and you would say, oh, this is me, I've been raised in a Christian home, but it, it's been all behavior modification. I, I've, I, I've, it, I, I see today, Lord, I, I've never had a heart for you. I've, I've, I've had behavior, but no heart. I want my heart to be changed. I want Christ to save me from my sins. I believe that he died and rose again for me. I I fall upon his mercy, Lord. And by the way, if you do that, Jesus himself said, if you'll do that, I'll never cast you out. And for the rest of us, can we say, like a man pulled from a fiery vehicle to a firefighter, Would you say that to God? Because what he has done will not just give you a few extra years. It will give you eternal life. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.